you, if you've got a Bible in front of you, I would invite you to turn to that passage of Scripture that we read a moment ago. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And in particular from verse 5 through to the end of verse 11. Philippians 2. Now, folks, how are you coping with Christmas? Are you managing? Are you gritting your teeth and uh, getting through it? It is a busy, busy time of year, isn't it? There's lots of shopping to be done. There's lots of presents to be wrapped and food to be made. There's all the little traditions. There's the, the music and the lights, the whole shebang. Lots and lots to be done. But in amongst all this chaos and in amongst all the festivities, what should be the Christian's response to Christmas? What should be our uh, primary reaction to the incarnation? As a church, as Christians, how should we respond to Christmas? And as we open to these familiar verses, that's what we're going to consider and think about just for a brief time this morning. We're going to think about the Christian's response to Christmas. And to do that, what we're going to do is think about the three states or three conditions of Jesus Christ. So we'll think about his his pre-existence what he was like before Bethlehem. Then we'll think about his incarnation, what he was like when he became man. And then we'll think about his exaltation, what will happen in the future. So the three states of Christ. And if you want to think about it in the most simplistic terms, we could think about it like the three points being pre-Christmas, Christmas, and then a post-Christmas. So let's look at these verses. Let's look at verses 5 to 11, and let's consider our first point this morning. And that is point one, Christ's pre-incarnate divinity. Has everyone got that? Christ's pre-incarnate divinity. And here the, the, the focus is very much on one verse, and that's verse Six, verse 6. So what do we learn? And what do we learn about Jesus from verse 6? Well, we learn firstly, don't we, that he was. What does Paul say? He says that Jesus was in very nature God. He was in very nature God. So what does that mean? Well, the word that Paul uses... The word in the Greek is the word morphe. Okay, morphe. And this means that that prior to Bethlehem, that prior to coming to earth, that Jesus existed. And he existed eternally in the same form. Exactly the same form as God. And if you've got an NIV, I don't know what version of the Bible you might... I've brought with you, but if you've got an NIV in front of you, 
you'll see that because there's a little A and it takes you to the, the footnote at the bottom of the page and have a look. It just tells us that this phrase could equally be translated that Jesus was in the form of God, in the form of God. So do you get that? Prior to his birth, Jesus existed and he existed with these same unchangeable attributes as the Father. He existed eternally with the same character and the same nature as God. Okay. But what does that tell us about how we should respond to Christmas? Okay. Well, it tells us that at Christmas, in the next couple of days, we are not celebrating the birth of a humanitarian hero. Okay? Christmas is not about the birth of some wonderful uh, civil rights leader in the sort of form of Nelson Mandela or Mother Teresa or, I don't know, Martin Luther King or, let's say, Gandhi. It's not about that. It's about the birth of an eternal figure, one who existed prior to his birth, and one who shared the same glory as God, the same form as God, and the same very nature as God the Father. So have we got that? But then we learn a second momentous detail from verse 6. And it is momentous. And we've got to dig a wee bit deeper into verse 6 to get it. But look at it. Look at verse 6. Paul tells us here that Jesus was equal with God the Father. He was equal with God. Because Paul says Jesus did not consider equality with God something to grasp. So not only did Jesus share the same form and nature, but that in every detail, in in every way possible and imaginable, the Son was and is equal with the Father. Now, please picture the scene. This is prior to my move to London. And we are up in Scotland, and we are in our house, and we're packing up, and we're up against it time-wise. And I'm in the study, and I've got all the boxes out, and I'm frantically trying to pack up all the hundreds and hundreds of books in the study. And I'm, I am sweating, and I'm flustered, and the doorbell goes. And who is it? Who is it always when you are uh, flustered and in a rush? It was Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses were at the door. And and we chatted. We did. We chatted for a while. And it was very clear that Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they had a lot about Jesus correct. But one area of gross and huge error is this. Is what we're talking about right now 
and here because, yeah, they get some stuff right. They see that Jesus is the Son of God. They say that. They, they view him in some ways as being divine. But despite that, they say that Jesus was created by the Father. Now, sometime before the creation of the world, that God created the Son. And although they say he's the Son of God, that makes him inferior. It makes him inferior to the Father. And so many other beliefs and religions go along the same lines. Think of Mormonism too. They believe that Jesus the Son was formed. That he was created by God the Father. But look at, look at verse 6. Paul tells us that the Son was equal, equal with God. And the word that he uses is the word isos. Isos. And it's where we get the, the English word, the scientific word, uh, isomer. Now, do you know what an isomer is? Well, I confess that I had to uh, look up what an isomer was. But it refers to compounds that have differing structural formula, but compounds that have exactly the same molecular makeup. So do you get it? Do you see? We're reading about here, we're reading about Jesus, and we're reading that he is exactly exactly equal to the Father, that the Jehovah's Witnesses have it wrong, that the Mormons have it wrong. There was no forming, there was no creating of the Son of God. Now, I'm sure that some of us over the last few days have watched, uh, what was it, Sports Personality of the Year. Did you see that? What a fuss was made about that. And we've got Andy Murray coming third. Who came second? Was it Jen uh, Jessica Ennis came second. And then Bradley Wiggins came first. But that's not the same as what happens in the Trinity. You see, there isn't some sort of structuring there based on achievement or based on longevity. Jesus was and is Isos. He is equal, equal with the Father. So friends, let me ask you at this point then, what does your Jesus look like this Christmas? Does that sound like an odd question? It probably is. But what do you think of when you think about Jesus at Christmas? Do you think of his birth? Do you think about his, his life and his ministry? Do you think about his death? Do you even think about his resurrection? Well, is that Jesus really big enough? This Christmas, let's not view Jesus from the stable door. This Christmas, let's pull back the curtain on eternity. And let's view Jesus as he really is. As equal. As infinite. As majestic. As eternal. And as the divine, the divine Son of God. Because in the beginning was the Word. 
and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So Christ's pre-incarnate divinity. Now, um, at this time of year, schools and churches and even, I think, um, some theatre companies, they're always looking for new ways of telling the Christmas story, aren't they? I think that uh, the problem, that, as they see it, is that how can a school put on a nativity play year in, uh, year out, and still keep it exciting and fresh? So what happens is, inevitably, you get schools that tell the nativity story from the viewpoint of an angel, or the nativity Christmas story from the viewpoint of, let's say, one of the wise men. And I know, having searched for Christmas presents for my children, that there is a book out there, which I won't be buying, that uh, tells the nativity story from the viewpoint of a donkey. Um, But look at Philippians 2. Because what we've got here is the incarnation from the viewpoint of the eternal Son. We're reading here about Christmas from Jesus Christ's viewpoint. So in the the first point, we've seen Jesus' eternal and exalted state prior to Bethlehem, prior to his birth. Now let's consider a second thing. Second point this morning. And that is Christ's incarnate degradation. We all got that. Second point, Christ's incarnate degradation. And the focus here is verses 7 and 8. And here we are let into the, the incredible depths that Christ was willing to sink. And the depths that he was willing to plunge to in order to win salvation for his people, you see? Because what what we're reading about here is that pre-existent Christ, that majestic Christ that we've just talked about, that eternal and equal Christ, and we see him stand up from his throne. And we see him take off his crown. And we see him lay it at the feet of his father and agree to become nothing. He agrees to become humiliated and persecuted and shamed. And surely it's only when we see the incarnation against that backdrop of his pre-existence and his glory that the true miracle of, of Christmas hits home. You know, when we see Christ in that pre-existent state of being eternal and being equal, it's only then that we appreciate what he has done in becoming man. And there's two aspects here of this um, condescension. There are two ways in which Christ made himself nothing that we've got to take away and that we've got to focus on, okay? Two things about how he made himself nothing. The first one is that Jesus made himself nothing by becoming man. 
he became man. And what incredible mystery there is here. Is this not just the most mysterious and mystifying thing that you have ever read? That Christ became man. Now, I'm sure you've all heard of Martin Luther. Okay? Everyone's heard of Martin Luther, the great reformer. Well, he said about the incarnation, he said that the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, it is beyond all human understanding. That the eternal God, that this Christ who is equal in splendor and majesty with God the Father, a God who could do anything at any place, in any time, that he would condescend to be born in squalor and poverty and in a stable. It is incredible. It is bewildering. It's awe-inspiring in its mystery. But he did that, didn't he? He became man because what's the word? The word is morphe, and it's used again. Jesus, he took upon himself the same nature, the very same nature as man. He resembled us from our fingertips to our feet. He had the same pressures and circumstances and situations. He had the same, he had a lineage. He had physical birth. He had a mother. He was like us in every way. And it is mind-blowing. J.I. Packer, he said about this, he said, the divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie there and stare and wriggle and make noises. God, the son, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. He made himself nothing by becoming man. What wonderful mystery. But then the second thing about his condescension is that he made himself nothing by becoming obedient to death. He made himself nothing by becoming obedient to death. And if there's anything, folks, that that we need to keep at the forefront of our minds at Christmas, it isn't trees, you know, it isn't presents. Come on, who, who cares? It's not even so much the fact that we're celebrating the birth. But we have to keep at the forefront of our minds that at the end of the line, there was also a death here too. And please don't misinterpret verse 8. Don't misinterpret what Paul says here. Because he says that Jesus became obedient to death. But that doesn't mean that he obeyed death, does it? It means that he obeyed God to the point of death. 
And this has at its root what we know as the covenant of redemption. Have you heard of that? The covenant of redemption. And this is where, before even the dawn of time, before the creation of the world, the Trinity, the triune Godhead, they formed the plan of salvation for mankind. It's a kind of intra-Trinitarian agreement. This covenant of redemption is kind of like a much more spiritual and much, much more effective deacon's court meeting. So it's the covenant of redemption. And you see too, the subject of all the verbs in the first section here, the subject of all the verbs is Jesus. Because it says here that he humbled himself. It says that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. It says he made himself nothing. It says he became obedient. You see, the point is that the Son, the Son of God, did not go kicking and screaming to his death. He knew that if we were going to be reconciled to God, then this was the only way. So he became obedient and even to the point of death. Now, are you uh, classical music fans? Does anyone like classical music here? Well, if you do, you might be familiar with Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. 1812 Overture. And that's famous because of its crescendo and the build-up that takes place in the 1812. And and toward the end, it builds up and builds up and culminates... Not as you would expect. It doesn't culminate in a long note. It doesn't even culminate with big timpanies and uh, big drums. No, the 1812, it goes the whole hog. And it culminates with fireworks and with cannon fire. That's what you call a climactic ending. And that's what we've got in verse 8. Because that verse builds up and it builds up and it builds up until the very last word and that's where the fireworks are that's where the cannon fire is read it it says and he became obedient to death even death on a cross and that word that reality that is the climax of the verse And it is also the lowest point, the darkest depths that anyone has ever sunk. And that's the greater miracle of Christmas. Not just that this eternal son came to be born, but that he became man to be born and to die on the cross. So, folks, let that cross, that cross that dominates verse 8, the cross that dominates the Bible, the cross that dominates everything that is good and true about Christianity, let that cross dominate our Christmas. Even in the next couple of days, let's be prayerful and thank God that he became man and that he came to suffer and die for us. Now, was um, 
Anyone here any use at maths in school? Was maths anyone's favourite subject? Well, our treasurer, the treasurer of the congregation, is away for Christmas, so I can confess that I was absolutely dreadful at maths. But don't let her know that, please. I couldn't tell my, my calculus from algebra. I just, I didn't have a clue. So when I read about parabolas this week, I really had to stop and think about it and try and remember what a parabola was. And a parabola is a U-shaped, a, a, a U-shaped curve on a graph, isn't it? A parabola, a parabola starts at the high point and it descends to the lowest point and then it goes back up again. And friends, that's what we've got in this part of Scripture. That's what we've got in these verses in Philippians, don't we? Because we start at the high point of Christ's pre-existence. We sink to the lowest point of his incarnation, and then we rise again. And it rises to verse 9, to verse 11, to the highest point. And our last point this morning, Christ's exalted dignity. Christ's exalted dignity. And we've looked at events in the past here. But Paul now kind of, he switches that. And he looks to the future and a future time where Jesus Christ will be exalted and he will be praised and raised up. And everything that we learn in verse 911, it focuses on Jesus' name. Everything is focused on the name of Jesus. And we see that he is given a name above all other names, don't we? And there's an easy mistake to make. Because we could think that the name above every other name is Jesus. But it's not. Because look at the end of the phrase. Paul says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord is the supreme name that Jesus is given. And Lord is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And this is the exalted and glorious name that Jesus is given a name that people wouldn't even pronounce because they saw it as so holy. And yet, because of Christmas, because of the incarnation, because of the cross, Christ is given this name. He is called Yahweh. He is called Lord, a name above all other names. And then we end this morning. We finish our service just by thinking about a second thing about Jesus' name. And that is that it is a name that will evoke praise. It is a name that will evoke praise. Because verse 10 tells us that there's a time coming, a future day, 
when people will bow. They will bow at the very mention of Jesus' name. And then verse 11 tells us that not only will people bow, but that tongues will confess him too. Verse 11 tells us that people will actually proclaim this name, that there's going to be this verbal confession of the lordship of Jesus Christ. But who's going to do that? That's the crucial question. Who is going to be involved in this vast congregation of praise on the last day? Who's going to be there? Well, Paul is at pains to point out that this is going to be universal universal praise that every single person who has ever lived will be there and will praise Jesus Christ he says every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and all will bow he says those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth that all will bow so let's end with that scene because what a scene that is isn't it the final day has come it is the end of time and all will bow the angels in heaven they will bow their heads and they will fall to their knees and the dead will rise and will join them men from all parts of the globe, regardless of faith, regardless of creed, regardless of religion, they will shout out that Jesus Christ is Lord. And even the very demons of hell will be forced to follow suit. You see, friends, on that day, we will all bow before Jesus Christ the King. So this Christmas, let's start those festivities early. And let's ensure that we respond appropriately to the Incarnation. And let's, over the next few days, let's ensure that all of us, all of us, that we bow the knee and that we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray.